morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to church. Great to have you. How are we this morning? Good, good. Good morning, everyone that's joining us online. It's great to have you as well. And if this is your very first time at Faith Community Church or just checking us out online, I want to say a special welcome to you. We're really honored to have you with us today. If you have any questions about anything that you hear today, I just want to let you know I'll be up on the stage for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes after the service, and I would love to meet you and answer any questions that I can. I am really excited to jump back into our teaching series this morning, but real quick before we do that, a uh, quick public service announcement. We just want to uh, draw your attention to some new glass doors that were just installed on the refuge lounge right over here. So if you came in the north end of the building, you might have seen those already. I'll invite you to go check those out uh, later this, uh, this morning. But this is just a great opportunity to say a couple things to your Faith Community Church. Uh, first of all, the purpose of the glass doors. Uh, number one, they provide a really cool space for our kids and our students and their leaders on Wednesday nights. Whenever I come pick up my eighth grader on Wednesday night, there's just a really, really cool vibe in that space. You got 40-year-olds smashing ping-pong balls on sixth graders' faces, and you've got 17-year-olds doing the same at the foosball table with each other. It's just, there's just a great uh, vibe there on Wednesday nights. And so we're just really uh, glad. Uh, it's fun to be able to provide a cool space like that for you. And, and the the doors are just an opportunity for us to say to you again, students and kids and their leaders, we love you, we are so grateful for you, and we are praying for you, and we just want you more than anything in the world to know the Lord Jesus, okay? The other thing, though, is on Sunday mornings, that space is called the Volunteer Hub. So if you walk by, you'll see some round tables and chairs set up and a lot of food laid out. Every single Sunday... There are about 100 people using the gifts that God has given them to service here on Sunday morning on music teams and tech teams and hospitality teams. We've got people teaching faith kids and faith littles all around the building. And uh, some of those people are here all morning. So they worship with you in one service and then they serve at another service. Some poor schlubs, like this guy over here, sit through two sermons every week. Okay, so just count your uh, blessings if you just come once, okay? Uh, but the Volunteer Hub is a great place uh, for you if you're serving to go, put your feet up, get something to eat, hang out with other people that are serving here on Sunday morning. Uh, we just, we just want to say thank you. It, they're just doors, okay? But it's a great opportunity to say to you once again, we love you. We are so grateful for you. Thank you for all the ways that you serve us and to everyone. So the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, the Bible says, to build up the whole body. And we, we literally have hundreds of people uh, serving outside of the building and outside of Sunday mornings as well, uh, discipling and mentoring and doing ministry. We see you. We love you. And the doors are just a chance again to tell you that. Okay? So uh, we're, let me just pray for us real quick. And uh, then we'll jump into our teaching time. Father, this morning, I just want to say uh, thank you for every gift that you've given and each person that you've called into service. And I ask that you would build up the unity of this church and allow it to increase in love and knowledge. And would you bless, bless, bless everyone uh, that is serving in every way that really matters through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 
All right, well, if in this series we've been looking at the life of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis, and if this is your very first time with us, just a quick catch-up for you. Joseph was one of 12 brothers who was sold into slavery in, you know what, actually, you know what, we haven't had a quiz in like a year. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Okay, are you ready? Is everyone's brain on? Turn it on right now. Oh, somebody just literally threw a switch. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, and Joseph was sold into slavery where? In Egypt. Okay, those 10 of you who responded, you get 1,000 points this morning. Joseph was sold into slavery. He had how many, how many sons of Jacob were there? There were 12. Very, very good. He's sold into slavery in Egypt. Then he's thrown into prison by his Egyptian master. And at each step down, the story tells us the Lord was with Joseph. Very, very good. 1,000 points if you answered correctly this morning. What we have been seeing so far in this series is that behind the apparent randomness and the suffering of Joseph's life, God was always at work. Always at work, making everything work for the good of Joseph and indeed for the good of the whole world. Now, two weeks ago, if you were here, there was a dramatic reversal in Joseph's story. God caused Joseph to be lifted from the prison to the right hand of Pharaoh and given responsibility uh, not just to save the land of Egypt, but indeed to save that entire part of the world from famine. And so Joseph has experienced the redemption of God in this story already. He has begun to see some of what God was doing in the midst of his suffering and he has begun to see how God was taking up everything that had happened to him and forcing it to do good to him. So Joseph is out of the dungeon and today the story turns to the redemption of his brothers. Specifically, and we won't really get into this until next week, but specifically this is about the redemption of a brother named Judah. So today we're going to be talking about the role of guilt in making us free from our past. That may sound a little counterintuitive to you, but we're going to be talking about the role of guilt in setting us free uh, from our past. One thing that Genesis does not do is give us a systematic theology of everything. We're not going to read a systematic theology of guilt or of confession or anything like that. What we're going to see today uh, is a story, one story, of how God did this. Because and the reason I'm excited about it is because we tend to think about religion like a set of levers or buttons that we push, you know, and if you do it in the right combination, you know, you say the right prayers or you do the right religious things, boop, out pops your salvation or your redemption or something like that. We're not going to see that today. And if you're a Christian this morning, what I would love for you to see, what I would love for you to remember is the process that God brought you through to bring you here. And if you're not a Christian this morning, Okay, if you're just considering the claims of Christ or you're here because some cute guy invited you or something like that, what I would love for you to hear is how different the actual story of God is from what you've maybe heard about how religion works. They're nothing alike, okay? So we're gonna be uh, picking up right where we left off with Genesis chapter 42. Well, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Why don't we all find it? Genesis is the first book of the Bible 
The chapters are the big numbers on the page. The verses are the little numbers on the page. That'll be on page 35 in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Page 35. While you're finding it, uh, just a reminder when we're reading Old Testament stories that the authors of these stories had to be really, really selective in what they chose to share with us and what they did not choose to share with us. So every scene is on purpose. Every conversation is on purpose. Uh, everything we learn about the characters and what they're doing has been chosen for a specific reason. And as listeners, you and I are invited to kind of, actually we're kind of expected to read between the lines a little bit. Old Testament stories require your brain on. They invite you to engage with them a little bit and to ask yourself, why of all the things we're being told, why am I being told this? What is the author really trying to impress on my mind? Genesis is not a novel, okay? He, the authors do not have the luxury of just taking mountains and mounts of words to, to, to develop an idea. These are tightly structured, highly intentional historical stories meant to shape our lives today. Okay, let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay, is everybody there in Genesis 42, verse 1? Uh, this is the first year of the famine. It's been 20 years since Joseph was sold by his brothers, so he's 37 years old, and he's busy saving the world. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, here's the scene change, 42.1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. And thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. All right. What do we learn? Just from those five verses, what do we learn? Number one, first thing that we see is that while Joseph is leading an enormous international relief effort, what are his brothers doing? They are literally standing around staring at each other. And dad has to come to them and say, why are you standing around staring at each other? I heard there's food in Egypt. Why don't you go get some before we all die? Okay, so start. So there's another thing. Starvation is a real possibility for these men and their families. And what, what do we learn about them? They're stuck. They're just sitting around like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. <clears throat> then it says, and here's a, little, here's a little, you know, bing for the listener. A little uh-oh for the listener. If you've been following along with Joseph's story for a while, uh, dad says, go down to Egypt. Now, where have we heard that phrase before? Who was the last brother? to go down to Egypt. It, it was Joseph, the one that they threw into pit and then they sold into slavery. He went down to Egypt. And when the brothers came to dad and made up this lie about Joseph being eaten by a wild animal, what did Jacob say? He said, I'm gonna go down uh, into the grave in sorrow. So it's just a little verbal reminder that these guys are really guilty. And we're gonna see in just a minute, it weighs on them. If you sold a loved one into Canada, how much would you want to go there? You, you probably not. Why would you go to Canada? Why would you go to Canada anyway? You, you, if you sold someone into Minnesota, how quick would you be to cross the bridge? Okay? Uh, and that's just kind of the vibe that we get here. Now, why are the brothers so paralyzed in the face of death? 
I think the author's letting us know because they're guilty and they know. And it weighs on them. Now, what else do we see? Verse 4, but Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's little brother, because he was what? He's afraid that harm would come to him. So what else do we learn? We learn also Jacob has still not learned the lesson. 20 years have gone by and Jacob is still wreaking havoc in his family with his favoritism. So hey, you might all die, but why don't you 10 go, but I'm gonna keep my fave. How's that going for Jacob? How's that going for the family? Jacob, uh, his name means grasping. He is still grasping. He's still trying to control things, especially with his kids. He has not learned to let go. So there you go. If you were wondering how Joseph's family has been doing these 20 years while he's in Egypt, we've just been told in five verses, not great. They're all bound up. There are still a whole bunch of issues. And uh, let's pick up in verse six. Okay, here we go. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. You remember that dream that Joseph had way back in chapter 37? 20 years later, it's happening. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And look, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to, bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. And so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. And Joseph turned away from them and wept. 
And then he returned to them and spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Joseph's brothers do not recognize him. Uh, Go home today and compare a picture of you at 17 and then at 37. That should clear up some of the mystery for you. Uh, But keep in mind also that uh, Joseph has become Egyptian in every way but his faith. He dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yes. He walks like an Egyptian. I got so many fun texts, by the way, last week uh, in response to my 90s hip-hop reference. I think if I can find one, this was for Gen X, by the way. Bless you, bless you. If I can find one cheesy cultural reference every week between now and Christmas, you are going to give me a prize. So you can talk amongst yourselves, <laughs> but that's what we're going to do, okay? He walks like an Egyptian. If the brothers had even entertained the idea of finding Joseph, where would they have looked for him? In the marketplaces or the mines or in the refugee camps, as far as they're concerned, though, verse 13, he is what? No more. As far as they know, he's dead. There's no attempt to find him. And also, the meaning of the phrase, he treated them like strangers, in verse 7, uh, it, it, the idea is that he made himself a stranger to them. Some, some of your translations will say he disguised himself. He's speaking through a translator. You know, maybe he's set back from them or has his face in the dark or something like that. We don't know. The point is that Joseph chose for a time to keep himself hidden from his brothers. And I think that's really significant as we're going to see over the next three weeks. Especially since this is a picture of how God redeems us. Joseph chooses intentionally for a time to keep himself hidden. Now, verse 7 says he spoke roughly to them, and we're not really told why. We're left to speculate. My speculation is that uh, Joseph's having a natural, visceral reaction to seeing his brothers again. You remember last week, if you were here, he named his firstborn son Manasseh, saying, I've forgotten my father's house and all my trouble there, and now here they are, suddenly. Just, you ever had someone you've hurt, or that's hurt you after a really long time, just show up, you you understand maybe some of his reaction. But verse 8 repeats this formula. Joseph recognized them. They did not recognize him. So I think there's a hard reset. And in verse 9 it says, Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed. Joseph remembered the dreams He dreamed. Whatever he was feeling, whatever he was thinking when he saw them, he recognizes that what is unfolding here is what God told him about when he was 17. Maybe he'd forgotten about it, but suddenly God calls it to mind and Joseph recognizes the hand of God in seeing his brothers bow before him. And for sure, it's at this point that Joseph begins to work uh, for the restoration of his family. And he does it by creating this ruse, a redemptive ruse. In verses 9 through 20, he creates uh, this lie for the sake of stirring up the consciences of his brothers. And he puts them through 
basically the same thing they put him through 20 years earlier. You are spies, he says. And you have come to spy out the nakedness, literally uh, he means the defenselessness of the land. Egypt is loaded with grain, the rest of the world is starving, national security is a genuine concern. And he says, you've come to search out the weaknesses of our defenses. Why does he do that? Because that is exactly what his brothers accused him of 20 years earlier. They hated him because of his father's favoritism. They hated him because of his coat. And they hated him because he brought a bad report about them to dad. And so when they saw him coming, they said, here comes this dreamer. He's come to spy us out. Let's get rid of him. So Joseph does the same thing. They say in verse 10, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're all honest men. And everyone in the audience said, Boo! <laughs> your servants have never been spies. Spying's a dangerous business. Why would anyone risk 10 sons on such a risky venture? How could we be spies? Joseph presses the issue in verse 12, and they reveal even more. Verse 13, we are 12 brothers, the sons of one man, the baby's at home, and one is no more. And here's Mr. No More talking to them. So Joseph creates a test. He says in verse 15, okay, you've got a, another brother, Let's meet him. Verse 16, one of you gets to go home and bring your brother back. The rest of you stay here in prison and we'll see you're lying. And then for three days, Joseph gives his brothers a taste of the anxiety and uncertainty and the fear that he endured for 13 years at their hand. Just a taste. Imagine those three, what are you thinking for three days? Will we ever get out? Will we make it home in time to save our little ones from starvation? Who is this governor of Egypt? Why is God doing this? What is happening? And for the very first time, their lives are completely out of control, just as they did to Joseph. And after three days, uh, Joseph brings them out and changes his mind, just like they did to him. You remember they put him in a pit? They said, we're going to kill you. They bring him out, we change our mind. We're just going to sell you instead. So Joseph brings him out, and he says, I fear God, so I'm changing the parameters of the plan. Nine of you go home, leave one here. Joseph knows their families need food, okay? I fear God, go home, save your families. Uh, but he flip-flops on them just like they did on him. And what he's doing is that Joseph is making a powerful appeal to their memories to awaken the guilt of their consciences. And it works. Verse 21, they say to one another, surely all of this is because of what we did to our brother. We saw the distress of his soul, how he begged us and we did not listen, and that is why this trouble has come. You see, through the wisdom of Joseph, please listen to this. Through the wisdom of Joseph, God is bringing these people back to the place where they disobeyed him in maybe the worst way. You remember 
Uh, back in chapter 37, they threw him in a dry cistern. How do you die in a dry cistern? First of all, dehydration takes place. Then malnutrition begins to eat away at you, and finally the birds of the air and the beasts eat you. They threw him in there. We learn now in verse 21 that Joseph begged and pleaded with them for, from the pit. And what did they do? You remember back in chapter 37, what did they do? They had lunch. Do you remember that part of the story? How callous do you need to be? How wicked do you need to be to cast your own flesh and blood into a pit to hear him pleading for his life and to say, pass the butter. And how foolish are we to think that you can do that kind of thing and God will not see, he will not care, and nothing will happen. For 20 years, think about this, for 20 years, these guys have kept up the charade with dad that Joseph was eaten. For 20 years, they've been pretending that Joseph was killed knowing what they did to him. And if you think they were able to do that and just pick up and carry on with their lives, then you don't understand the human heart and you don't understand the grace of God very well. Don't you think from that point on they avoided the scene of that crime? Whenever they were out pasturing flocks, don't you think they just gave that a wide berth? Here in verse 21, can't you, hear, can't you see them waking up in the middle of the night with the sound of Joseph's screams in their ears for 20 years? Do you wonder now why they're so bound up in verse one? That while death is knocking at the door, they are crippled and don't know what to do and no one is volunteering to go to Egypt until dad just tells them they need to. For 20 years, these guys have tried to move on, to bury the past, to suppress it, and now their guilt has caught up with them. And when Joseph hears them confess for the first time, it says that he turned away and he wept. <clears throat> this is because the first step toward the redemption of your life and real freedom from your past is awakening your conscience to your guilt. There can be no reconciliation with God without that. There can be no sweeping of things under the rug. There can be no relationship with God until we come to grips with what it means that we're guilty before a holy and righteous God. If you want a life that is free and inspired by the gospel, it begins with your guilt. Now, there's a whole narrative out there that is going to tell you that the path to freedom is in ignoring your guilt, suppressing your guilt, justifying your guilt, or medicating your guilt away. That's what the brothers did for 20 years. Some of us have done that. We've tried to ignore it. We've tried to suppress it. We've tried to drink the guilt away. Things that God wants us to feel guilty for, we have been trying to get rid of. This is what Proverbs 28 verse 13 says. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm uh, verse 32, or chapter 32 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered or atoned for. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, when I tried to hide it, when I tried to suppress it, my bones wasted away. Guilt actually produces physical and psychological illness in us, okay? Day and night, verse four, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as by the heat of summer. There are physical, emotional, and psychological consequences when we hide guilt, and that's what's going on in verse one with the brothers, and their families are gonna starve, and they cannot move, and now we begin to see why. Just another scripture, in in 2 Timothy chapter three, the apostle Paul, uh, writing to a young pastor, he says, a time is coming when people will be, quote, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without salt, let me know when I've said yours, okay, just, why don't you stand when I get to yours, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and he adds in verse five, having the appearance, this is, he, having the appearance of godliness, but knowing nothing of its power, so that they, these are people who talk a lot about God, I'm sure Joseph's brothers uh, had a religious veneer to their lives, but Paul says they are burdened with sin and led astray by various passions. I've seen this. I've seen this in close friends who in a, a season or even a moment of weakness or foolishness or fear, they do something And maybe it's just a one-time mistake. Maybe it's an extended season of foolishness. But they're so ashamed and so afraid of being found out, sometimes just too proud to admit that they were wrong. And everyone around them knows something's up. Something's gone wrong, but they're so afraid. And they turn everywhere but to God. And there's confusion in their life and heartache and life just kind of stops working. Their relationship with God, if they'd had one before it happens, it just becomes this really confusing things and they start turning to alternate theologies. They start trying to find people who are gonna assuage their guilt by, by affirming what they've done. They get into all kinds of psychological diagnoses and try all different kinds of therapies and medications and it just doesn't work. I've seen this firsthand. And some of us are so bottled up inside. And then we we look at others in the church who have done some of the very same things that we have done. And we wonder why they're experiencing such usefulness and freedom. And we are stuck. We see others who have these relationships with their kids or their friends where their past is known and they're not ashamed. Like they're able to talk openly with their children about their history without the fear that the kids are gonna turn around and use that as an excuse to do some of the same things. Do you know what I'm talking about? We have leading men and women here at Faith Community Church on our leadership teams, leading missional communities, men and women on our staff, men among our pastors and elders who have aborted children or pressured others to abort children, who have lived in sexual immorality, who have been captive to pornography, who have committed adultery, or betrayed someone that they love, people who've gotten caught in addictions and to drugs and alcohol, 
leaders in our church who've had children out of wedlock, and yet they're able to walk before the Lord without shame or guilt. In fact, they seem to have these really rich, beautiful, open relationships with God, a life inspired by the gospel, if you will. Why are they able to move on and to have their past taken up into God's redemptive story and others of us are just stuck and being drawn away to theologies that say, there, there, now, peace, peace. God would never hurt a fly. Jesus is just another 21st century American and he's totally chill about this stuff now. Because the difference is that the first step toward the redemption of our lives and, and, the free, and freedom from our past is the awakening of our consciences to guilt so that we might be set free. Because the second step, okay, and that's, so this isn't part of the scripture we just read, but I don't want to leave you hanging for three weeks, okay? The second step, when we see what we have done and we bring it honestly before the Lord, is to see the cross of Jesus finally for what he has really done there. And that is to freely, fully, and completely pay forever for what you've done. When you talk with one of these Christians around here who've done some of the same things that you've done, yet they seem to live this gospel-inspired life, you should hear two things. I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great savior. Those two things. Now, loved ones, just before we move on, there is a thing called false guilt. That's not what this passage is about, but there is a thing called false guilt, and people can get bound up and enslaved by that too, and it's especially common where there's been abuse, okay? So if you're here and and in your past, someone has abused you, and now you feel this cloud of shame and darkness descending on you, I just wanna say, understand, there is a guilt that is not rooted in the holiness or the word of God, Uh, but that's not what is in view here, and I would encourage you, if that's you, to find a trusted friend and say, this is what I'm experiencing right now, What does God's word say about me, okay? But everyone thinks, and this is the thing that that really grabs me in this story that we just read. Everyone thinks that the first thing you have to know is that God loves you. And there, so everyone's listening, there is a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that, but the way some people talk about the love of God, it's like this silly game. Like God is just some kind of funny, stupid man up in the sky who loves a good laugh and hell is this funny place and we're gonna play games with holy things and who cares what I do? Nobody's perfect. What the hell? God will get over it. That's his job. And we're gonna pull the right levers, push the right button, maybe help an old lady across the street, send up a Hail Mary, try to balance the scales or something like that. And Jesus, especially the cross of Jesus, just kind of remains this like historical hiccup like, but that's really interesting. I wonder why he had to do that. Let me ask you this. Is the scene that we just read together, is this funny? (laughs) Is this a funny scene? Are the brothers having a great time right now? No. This is what grabs me. Joseph loved his brothers. Despite all they'd done, he loved his brothers, but he chooses to remain a mystery for a while until they really understand what they've done and come to grips with it. He chooses to put them through this, I'm gonna say, rather agonizing process at times. 
but he doesn't just throw his arms around them right away. Oh, guys, it's me. It's Joseph, and I love you so much, and it's all good, and look at what God has done, and yes, you're total scumbags. You tried to kill me, but <laughs> it's okay. We're all going to be happy now. That's not what he does. Joseph loved his brothers, but he puts them through this process of grace. And when they begin to see what they've done, he weeps. Now, if you've been raised in a, on a formulaic understanding of the grace of God, where you push the right buttons, you pull the right levers, you do X, Y, or Z religious thing, and then pff, out pops salvation, that can be unnerving. I do not think that being unnerved is the worst thing when you're dealing with the living God. So I'm not going to resolve all the conflicts this morning. This sermon's title is A Test of Love, Part 1. For a thousand points, can anyone guess the title of next week's sermon? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to try to resolve all this tension. I just want to say, if you're a little unnerved by this idea that God might send famine into your life, that he might choose to remain hidden from you for a while, that he might put you through a process rather than, well, can't I just pray something and salvation falls, if that unnerves you, say, okay, hang in there, friend, okay? The, it, it's coming. And I want to say to you before we leave, God loves you. And I mean that sincerely. God loves you. He knows everything you've done. He knows it better than you do. He loves you, but his purpose is to make sons and daughters who really are free forever and moving from one degree of glory to the next. So the question as we leave this morning, at the end of part one, is just this. Have you ever, have you ever come to the place in your life personally where you have felt the weight of what you have done to the living God? Have you felt the burden of guilt and then have you seen what Jesus did? Have you seen the cross of Jesus and how he shed his blood for you so that you would be free forever? If that is you this morning, we're gonna go to prayer right now. If that is you this morning, take some time to remember right now. Give thanks for the process that God led you through. If that's not you this morning, but you can see it now, I want you to speak to God to say, I see what I've done and I confess it to you freely. I'm asking that you would set me free by the blood of Jesus. And if you're here and you're confused, so are the brothers. You're okay. Come back next week. <laughs> but I want you to just bring yourself before the Lord and say, this was really confusing. I want to know you. And I don't want you to be hidden from me forever. Would you speak to me? Let's pray right now, right where you're at. Our Father in heaven, would you take all that's been said and bless it? Would you parse out for people's hearts uh, truth from error this morning? And we pray together as your people gather together, especially that you would minister to and speak to anyone 
uh, who is experiencing confusion. God, would you make clear what only you can make clear. Help us to see what we have done and to see the Lord Jesus with even greater clarity as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.